I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know I've been talking about having episodes that are sort of group discussions where I invite several people who may or may not have already been on the podcast in the past uh, to come together and have a discussion about certain topics. Um, So this is the first of these episodes, and I've invited some of my favorite writers Um, to talk about their new books, about sexuality, kink, queer life, art, magic, writing, and just everything that's going on right now. Uh, Tom Bland is here, and his new book is called Camp Fear from Bad Betty Press. You can find him on Twitter at physis93, that's P-H-Y-S-I-S-9-3. Jason Hoff is here, and his new book is called Harsh Cravings. You can find him on Instagram at Hoffwit, that's H-A-A-F-W-I-T. And Zai Valdez is here, and Zai's new book is called Poetry is Both the Compass and Machete. And you can follow Zai at Instagram at Ronin versus Strawberry Ice Cream. That's R-O-N-I-N underscore V-S underscore Strawberry Ice Cream, as well as the band Violet Silhouette Official at Instagram. And coming up this weekend, if you're in South Florida, Violet Silhouette will be performing on Saturday, the 26th at La Rosas in Miami. As well, Zai DJs often at Respectable Street Cafe in West Palm Beach. And if you're in London, you can catch Tom on Monday at Queer Erotica, happening at The Glory on Monday, February 28th at 8 p.m. in London. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Chapart Books, 2019. You can visit our publisher's website, chapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can also follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore at Instagram and Twitter. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Um, so does anyone have anywhere specific they want to begin? Do we keep bitching about Florida? <laughs> <laughs> Poetry? Sounds good.
Um, does anyone want to talk about their book? Um, yeah, Camp Fear uh, was published on Halloween uh, last year. Um, and it's a book about five characters, really. Um, it's a verse novel. Um, so the main character is a trainee psychotherapist. He used to be a clown and now does drag on the side. Um, and then there's another character called Lyric Johnson, whose um, husband was um, uh, got very excited when Will, uh, Tom's, uh, Tom uh, Cruise um, uh, showed some interest in his sexuality and his body. And she wrote a memoir based on their relationship. Um, and then there's other characters too. And basically it's just a, a kind of absurdist psychedelic trip into the abyss. I think that's probably the best way to describe it. I think my favorite stuff about Tom's work is it always interweaving the, the psychologist and the psychology training in, and that perspective of like being in sessions <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah, the, um, like obviously I, I trained as a psychotherapist um, quite a long time ago now. Actually, I started the training in 2008 um, and it was primarily Jungian, but with a very kind of good grounding in psychoanalysis. Um, so I kind of structured the work using kind of psychoanalytic ideas. Um, and they come through some of the seminars you hear about and some of the sessions with the therapist. Um, and I try, I try to make the therapy as realistic as possible. Um, although it's also a training analysis. So he's kind of training to be an analyst whilst in the therapy sessions. So it isn't just the kind of um, person-centered kind of uh, uh, therapy where, where you, you know, you say something and the therapist just kind of reciprocates back to you. It's much more kind of in-depth uh, kind of understanding both of the theory as it relates to the individual's life and to him being able to work with clients with that knowledge in his heart, in, in his soul. Uh, that probably makes it sound much more complex than it is. Yes, it's much more fun. Yeah, it is actually a really fun book. And funny too, hopefully funny. And kinky. So I didn't quite hear that. I said and kinky. Oh yeah, it is, it is very kinky. It does have its moments. Uh, you know, and it's very pan as well. There's something for everyone in there. You know, uh, it, there's some straight scenes, there's some bi scenes, there's some gay scenes, there's some pan scenes. You know, everyone is catered for. Mm. What about you guys? Well, yeah, I guess I'll go into talking a little bit about mine. Um, mine was the kind of, uh, a, kind of like a little compilation of, of poems and collages, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that I just sort of uh, found from you know, a, a period of about 10 years, um, stuff that I did back in uh, high school and even like current photography. And I just sort of put them all together and said, well, this has a particular kind of vibe to it. Um, so I compiled it, yeah, in that little work. And um, 
for me, it's obviously the poetry is, is very easy to get into, obviously, like existential stuff and romantic stuff. But for me, it does have this kind of like satanic undertone that I think runs through it. Um, I just actually thought this today while I was brushing my teeth that poetry is an existential compulsion. So by nature, I think uh, poetry is existential. Um, and the, if you see some of the photography in there, there's stuff where I'm kind of playing with gender and playing with, um, you know, the Jungian anima and things like that. Uh, so I really like that. Yeah, Tom's uh, book had that sort of grounding too. I'm excited to actually read it um, with that with that sort of pretext. Um, but yeah, Vanessa, did you did you have any sort of uh, thing that popped out to you while while you were reading it? It's very again, it's very new to me. So I, I, I people have been coming to me and saying, oh, and I was getting some of this and some of that, and I was like, oh, I I did not pick that up, but cool. <laughs> I like the images and like the collage work because. I was expecting it to be uh, poetry, just poetry. And so when I opened it and saw the images and things, I had a good time looking through those. Awesome. And Jason knows I love his images of all his like vintage gay porn with his fucking words thrown over top so that they're grammable. <laughs> yeah. Um... Well, you have Bent Book, which is really just like an anthology. Um, I don't know. I'll kind of, I'll talk about Harsh Cravings some just to like maybe start getting used to that. Um, so Harsh Cravings is, it's basically like a 90 day diary slash memoir. Um, there's this book called I Wait the Devil's Coming by this author, Mary McLean. Uh, it was published in, I think, 1902. And she, I didn't know who she was prior, but she was like a 19 year old queer woman who was like stuck in Montana and chose to write for 90 days straight. And then she had her book published. So in 2020, I kind of saw what was going on, not only with me and like my own life but like nationally um there was an election there was COVID. like there was just so much going on so i chose to take 90 days between august and november of 2020 and write uh and sort of just do it as a stream of consciousness i didn't think each day what i was going to write about i just woke up at like six in the morning and made coffee and just wherever my head went that's where the writing would go um so I'm not sure if it qualifies, maybe there's like poetic elements in it, but it is more, uh, I would say almost like essay based. Um, but like Vanessa was saying, there is some artwork where I include sort of like vintage gay porn uh, and then put my words on top of it so that it, it kind of makes it into something else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love those pieces. I think you should do a whole book of those pieces. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have enough stuff, so maybe someday. Give it to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I love how it's stream of consciousness and how it weaves in like things that you're doing that day with more intimate things, things with your partner and with other people and sexuality. And it just like runs the gamut. 
Um, and I love when you're like, uh, like the scene with uh, your partner in the bathroom and, uh, and you're like projecting things onto him yeah. and then you realize like, no, that's not what was happening at all. But I love that. It's so great. Yeah. Yeah. It was also a time when like uh, he and I were really the only ones around each other for every day. So it's kind of like all you had really was to like either analyze yourself or <laughs> the person nearest you. So uh, that was definitely an, an inspiration. Yeah. And York was really locked down at that point too, huh? Yeah, I think it was during those months It August was okay. Uh, they, they were like the okay months. It was like, I would say from like March until June, July was when it was like lockdown, lockdown. And then it was like kind of easing. And yeah, that's when I chose to write, but it was still very much like in the pandemic. I also love that book by Mary McLean was her name. The, mm -hmm. uh, I found a McNally Jackson one day and I was like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Her like career was sort of all over the place. I think she died pretty young. I mean, I would say like late forties, uh, but then she like was also a performance artist. She had other works, but I never read them. That's the only thing that I've read of hers. Um, but I just like the time capsule element of it. So how did you all get into poetry in the first place and writing? Uh, for me, it was uh, definitely in high school, uh, touching on the transcendentalist works by like Emerson and Thoreau. And then I, I think it just got kind of darker from, <laughs> from that point forward. And yeah, and then I found the, rom the romantics, um, you know, Byron and Keats and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, then I, I, I think I just started experimenting with chemicals around the time too. And then I just found that poetry was the technology that was to sort of translate whatever cacophony was happening in my being. So that's, I think, yeah, that's when it really kind of went full force for me. And you got the Oscar Wilde book, right? Did you get that book from the part, The Uncanny Aspects of Oscar Wilde? Oh, no, I should get a copy though. Oh, you need that book. Mm. I just read it. It just came out, I don't know, a month or two ago. And it's so good. I got to edit it and I loved it so much. And it made me go back to Wild and read Wild and Bozy and all those guys. Mm. It's really good because it talks about their, their relationship in such a better way than you usually read. Like everyone like demonizes Bozy and it's just like, yeah, you know, give me a break. But this you know, person writes about everything in a much more nuanced way and talks about Wild's parents and they were into folklore and kind of magic too. And mm -hmm. kind of the, the more magical elements of like occultism and sexuality. And it's just good. Definitely going to pick that one up. <laughs> what about you, Jason? When did you start writing? Um... I mean, my earliest memories of it, uh, I would say like first grade, my school would 
I don't know. I guess like the kids would have to write like little short stories or something. And then if the teachers liked it or I, I don't know, basically you would get them like binded almost as like a reward, which like, I don't really like that element of like rewarding, <laughs> like mm-hmm. writing, but um, yeah. So I still have them here, uh, like here in the apartment. Uh, I wrote about like, this like mystical clown that would come to me in my sleep and he was like kind of dressed like a rainbow uh and I was like very sad to like go back home at the end um I wrote about uh there was like a rocket ship that would like go into space a lot of it was like leaving (laughs) Um, getting out of Florida (laughs) yeah yeah, there was one um, our friend Melissa read it, which she thought was like very interesting, where I wrote about like a family of ant eaters, and like there's one ant eater that's like a little bit different than the rest, which was like, I guess my character, and then we would like compare buttons on our clothes. It was just like it was weird. Uh, but anyways, that that was like my first memories of it. And then I, you know, I went to school for creative writing. Um, and I really, that was like my best time in school and college. Like I actually enjoyed it. Uh, and then I didn't write for like five or six years. Um, not until I was in my late twenties again. Um, I think I'd like gotten very into film during that time. Uh, and I sort of just ignored, not like ignored, but like, I didn't really like know what my writing voice was anymore. Uh, and then I think when I was like 28, 29, I started experimenting with it and I started almost writing in tones of like, I kind of wanted to fuck with the audience a little bit or like present them with information that they didn't quite know what to do with. And I wanted to like make the audience maybe feel a little panicked in a way, but like, I thought it was funny. Um, I sort of like wrote this one page thing about uh, myself as like a, like a five-year-old, but the five-year-old was like a Lolita type character and it did kind of like push some boundaries because it was five-year-old aware of their sexuality and like the adults around them. Um, And that was the first thing that I wrote like again, like since college. And then from there, I've been like steadily doing it. Can I tell you that mm. I also had a rainbow clown dream when I was Real. young? That was like a reoccurring dream, but it was kind of a nightmare. And it was like, it was this reoccurring nightmare that was like a fun house where I just kept having to go through like these mazes and these different rooms and like solving these riddles to try to get out. And like, like if I didn't solve whatever puzzle, whatever fast enough, like I'd be on this like mirror and then the mirror would turn into this like long wall and I'd be like balancing on the top of this like mirror wall and then it would start filling up with water and there'd be like sharks and then like a scorpion would come down like the edge of the mirror and I'd have to like get out. And at the end of the dream, whatever happened in the fun house, the fun house, <laughs> um, then like this like rainbow clown guy would come and I was like, oh, I like that, you know, and it had all these like colorful hands everywhere and like rainbow hands and I would be so happy it'd be like I want to go to the this like smiling guy and then like these like two black hands would come down and they would start like strangling me and then I would wake up like screaming so 
I'm trying to think of like I'm trying to think of like what the clown is obviously the clown is almost like you could say it's just kind of like an archetype no yeah I'm trying to think of what it what it would archetypally what it would uh represent represent I wonder if like the clown was like um I don't know like a modern day uh you can maybe trace it to like uh, a shaman or something you know or the character the the loony character in the village yeah the loony character in the village that wears masks and paints his face and you know goes into these elaborate you know dances and entertains the entertains the the tribe yeah totally a trickster figure Mm. bringing insight and illumination but in a little mischievous kind of way right right i like that and there's like a uh uh modern sort of uh revamp of that in like the whole like joker uh you know dc the dc comics joker you know movies and stuff like that so he's definitely making a comeback again which is kind of like a sign yeah sort of like a sign of the times you know he's like ushering in this new thing of what whatever's happening i don't quite have a (laughs) name for it but (laughs) Who the fuck knows? Mm. <laughs> yeah. What is but happening? I, yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> whatever is happening, it's definitely made me get. It's definitely changed my views on like um, occultism. Uh, I guess I'll start with that. Um, and it's made me look at at occultism in a much more, uh, not so much in a serious sense. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying that like, oh, I'm getting way more into sort of ceremonial magic and ritual and stuff like that. But, um, you know, just the, the, the search for hidden things. And that is what occultism is for me, you know, and as artists, I, I think that that's kind of like what we're doing. We're trying to find these little, uh, we're trying to either find little unseen or hidden things or poke holes in the fabric of, of, of what's over us so that we can see them so that's the relationship i think that i find between art and the occult absolutely and they're both like creative practices i feel like bringing your vision into being in into the world mm-hmm. as well i found myself this year as a at new year's i was thinking to myself none of this academic shit matters, the psychoanalysis, like the practice matters, like working with people and helping people like gain insight into their lives and stuff. But none of this stuff like around the fucking scene matters. The only thing that matters is like art and magic. It's like the only thing that matters. Mm. I know we talked about that. And then Tom posted a, a tweet that I made apparently last New Year's Eve that said the exact same thing. And I was like, oh, apparently I've already learned this. <laughs> Yeah. somehow I just like whoop get sucked back into things and then yeah. I go oh what am I doing I just need to focus on my art and that's like the inner child I, I guess too right it's kind of connected to that this inner child that's ever reminding us of of the important thing which is really just points back to creation and, and magic yeah I also think like not to get like too caught up in the current climate but in regards to like clowns i mean (laughs) 
I mean, if you think about it, like we had a president for four years that was largely a clown, um, but also like, <laughs> the, like a charlatan. Um, he was like selling snake oil and it sort of made any narrative. It kind of, I mean, we're still here today, but it's like, it's like a free for all. It's like pick your own adventure. It's like, oh, you want to go down this narrative? Uh, yeah, this is your truth. Oh, you want to do this? Like, oh, this is your truth. And like, there's sort of, um, I feel like not really a strong consensus of like what is truthful and like everything just seems extra subjective uh, right I, within the past like four to five years um, oh, for sure yeah, yeah so I would say like I, I don't know it kind of is like the the rug got pulled out a little bit and it's like everyone's trying to sort of find their footing again but it's I don't know I've gotten to a point where I'm like does the rug even like need to be there <laughs> like do we <laughs> like have to have this yeah fuck it so, yeah, yeah I I recently watched a uh no sorry not recently I've recently re-watched this video uh, um where in five minutes Terrence McKenna like it's called Terrence McKenna denounces relativism and it's just five minutes of just pure fucking gold of him just talking about, I don't know, just kind of like the, the yeah, this very problem. And I think this, this lecture was like from the early 90s, judging from the, like, uh, uh, the, the video quality or whatever. Um, but it's happening hardcore now where, yeah, like relativism and, and things like postmodernism are, is just kind of ripping through any concern for like you said um jason like anything that is kind of truthful or i mean reality is that word reality is such a loaded word now you know whoa, whoa, what your my reality or your reality and ah, confusion and no one really gets to no one's really speaking the same sort of language anymore um <laughs> So what is going to like save us, right? I mean, are we beyond saved or is there another thing or activity that hopefully can, can create some kind of cohesion so that we can hopefully kind of dance in the right directions instead of the constant conflict and, and yeah, the discomfort in that, the, the isolation socially anyway. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I have no, but yeah, and then another part of me is like, wait, but enough with this, you know, uh, search for reality or, or things that, that, uh, that uh, are going to say, oh, finally some objective reality, thank God, or something like that. Um, let's have a little fun, right? Let's, let's be the clown or let's do the thing and uh, let's just see how far this hole can, can go. A uh, part of me is kind of taking on that that sort of clownish trickster sort of a uh, uh, personality too. Yeah, fiction seems to go a long way, so. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like everything that's happening has been written about in some way before. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, uh, uh, who was it that said, uh, oh, well, Terrence McKenna said, uh, true enough. So there isn't like, truth in capital letters or something but there's the true enough uh mm -hmm. and then was it robert anton wilson i uh, said logic maybe <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you see a lot too like i get slapped in the face with this when like uh so carl has a daughter and whenever like i sign into youtube or something we all have like the same account and sometimes it's like her youtube account and it's like a completely different world you know it's like uh, what are all these videos who are all these people i don't know any of this you know and i'm sure she feels the same way when she sees mine i'm like wow everyone has like a completely curated reality online yeah that's you know? like completely different than everyone else's <laughs> it's like it's cool it sounds cool and it's also terrifying you know yeah maybe it's cool and terrifying <laughs> yeah because i like so, it i don't i don't uh, like any of this stuff on her youtube i'm like what is this i don't want to put on makeup while i'm listening to murder mysteries or, or whatever <laughs> <laughs> but you know speaking of how you know uh media technology really does and knows how to sophisticatingly sort of get in here um I think it's very wise that we kind of draw some, you know, some boundaries and, and make real discernment as far as our relationship with media technology. I just, uh, uh, or I'm just about to finish reading uh, Eric Davis's uh, book, Technosis, which really, I mean, it, I read that in the midst of the pandemic when I was isolated with media technology for the most part, you know, and I, he, Gave, the book gave me a certain vantage point to look at humans and their relationship to tech in such a way that, I, I mean, I'll be forever grateful for um, and slightly resent because I'm watching everyone just kind of like get the, the, you know, the thing in the matrix, get the thing like attached to their head. Like I was, be, I, it gave me a vantage point to watch that happen in real time. And it was just like, whoa, we, this, this thing here is creepy. It's creepy now. It's pretty creepy and it listens all the time. And that seems very clear. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess my thing is, is that like, I don't know. I know everyone sort of has like a tormented relationship with technology and social media. I think on one end, I think it is a tool. Like, I mean, as you both know, to like get your art out or to um maybe get your voice out in a way that wouldn't have been possible you mm -hmm. know 20 years ago um so that's like a positive but I myself like I hate <laughs> that something assumes that it like knows what I like it I get like almost like a violent reaction to it like I don't um I don't take pleasure in like what my phone shows me. I just don't, or like algorithms on Instagram. Like it's, uh, I don't know. I've, I've backed off like a little bit. Mm. Um, I, I think my thing is, is that I, I like mourn original content <laughs> and some <laughs> people do it, but for the most part, it's like seeing the same thing, which is usually not very intelligent or it's like middle brow at best like seeing the same thing posted over and over and over like I have to stop looking because I have my own thing with repetition <laughs> like I I don't love it um and it makes me feel like I'm going insane um 
that makes things feel very uniform and I find it a little scary. Um, it's like this group think beehive mentality that I don't think it's actually doing anything and it freaks me out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like a double-edged sword, I guess. No, and you can see it on all sides of the like political spectrum. It's just like, you know, people say more to the left, get mad that people on the right are all like spouting the same kind of meme nonsense about QAnon or whatever. But then like all my friends who I love dearly, it's like literally a meme will come on and like every single person I know, not everyone, but a lot, will share the same meme. And I'm like, how do you know that that meme's real either? You know what I mean? Just because that meme resonates with you. That could be a bunch of bullshit information too. And people just share, 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 share. It seems mm-hmm. really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, I think that it's a sort of uh, fallout or like symptom of like of 2020 and um, guilt, uh, which was like, no, like I knew this, I, 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 I knew this, uh, and maybe you didn't know everything about uh, America or race mm. or uh, politics, and, but no one wanted to like sort of admit that. Um, and I think whatever that trend was, I feel like social media and the algorithms like really caught on to that and everyone has just sort of bought into it. Um, so I think it's much less about the information that's being provided and more about not wanting to be left out, which I think is ultimately like, I don't know, a source need of a lot of humans. Uh, I don't think it's the best quality to have, but I think it's very real. Um, and I think we're just still in that, but it does feel robotic and, uh, weird. Like group think. Yeah, I've uh, I've I've touched upon a what feels like a lineage of uh, internet chaos magicians that are using memes in the form of what I, I think it's called mimetics, and they're you know like basically tr- using memes as almost sigils, sigilizing memes. I'm trying to figure out how that how to word it, sigilizing memes to sort of have an effect in the cyber sphere. But yeah, the, you know, the, the techno pagans, I guess we'll, we'll call them, which I don't think is a new term. Yeah, I think, I think that was a term that uh, was, it was kind of coined, I think in the early internet days. But yes, there, there are internet chaos magicians out there that are, you know, channeling their magic through, through memes. I think that's pretty, that's pretty cool. I used to have a friend that, or I have a friend that works in advertising who's a chaos magician and he like had to develop logos for companies and he's like developing a logo for a company is essentially like making a sigil for that company, which you then like shoot out into the world, you know? Yeah. Chaos magician sounds cool. <laughs> hmm. uh, now I know there's a, there's a relationship between the, the origin of, of chaos magic and Topi is that cor- would that be correct that would be correct they're they're kind of like in this from the same sort of nebula from the same something. era yeah yeah exactly and toby was definitely you know yeah full of chaos magic it's like uh it's like build your build your own magical 
way of being taking from whatever kind of currents that you like or that resonate with you and then yeah put it together it's like a self magic collage yeah <laughs> of self yeah mm. absolutely I love it I mean it's for me it's the only way to work I've been you know initiated into a couple of different traditions and I love them and I respect them deeply um but at the end of the day I just kind of I don't know just do my own thing you know and I mm. I venerate pay pay respect to all of my entities that live with me <laughs> um but yeah I'm just very much kind of yeah chaos magician at heart mm. well, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely for chaos magic um not 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 all practitioners there's there's one quite famous one who's now always going on about QAnon and he thinks chaos magic and QAnon are the same thing hmm. uh, which is quite you know I guess in the logic of chaos you could probably propose that but it just seems too ridiculous I mean I'm all for the discordian vibe but I mean you know yeah why go right wing there's enough right wing people in the world it's hardly a kind of subversive point of view i mean about 75 percent of the world is technically politically conservative so if you want to be a chaos magician or any kind of uh subversive outsider going with the 75 percent <laughs> right. a ridiculous position to have that doesn't mean one has to be left wing like me or you know whatever but i mean it has to be somehow different from the majority you know and i i think i think i think that's what is kind of missing with qanon you know and a lot of these kind of literal minded conspiracies is they just buy into very obvious and mainstream thinking but they just do it via the side door and they think the side door is the magic door to the universe. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I just think, mate, it's not about how you get there. It's where you're going. And if you're just going to the mainstream and sitting down with the, the um, what, Republicans or the Brexit conservatives, you know, it's not an interesting position to take. You know, and I think, I think magic needs to be a lot more dangerous than that and i think poetry needs to be a lot more dangerous about that and i think i think what people miss with the idea of danger uh is that you know the most dangerous position a person can take is vulnerability mm. you know? and that for me is the starting point of of the work how does how do i as uh, uh the the yeah for the want of a better term, the artist, how do I make myself vulnerable? You know, and that's that that for me is always the starting position. You mm. know. Uh, but I was reading a, a, um, a quote someone posted actually on Twitter from Bell Hooks about the wounded child. And she she uh, proposes that the, the what makes the child wounded is that when they start to speak truth or they start to speak a kind of honesty, they are immediately shut down, which mm -hmm. then wounds the child. And then that kind of repression uh, 
is what then distorts their personality into what people or society or the structures around them expect them to be. You know, and I think, you know, when we look at uh, Reich and Jung and Freud, you know, they're always asking us to look at what is uniquely individual to ourselves. You know, and that, that's where I think, you know, for me uh, as a, a writer, maybe for uh, others too here, you know, that is my starting point. You know, what, what story do I have to tell that is unique to me, to the kind of complex components that makes up oneself? You know, and I think, I think for me, that's where magic gets interesting. You know, and that, that's, you know, um, Peter Kingsley has this, um, not actually a big fan of his work, but I find it interesting. He just written a book on Jung, and basically Jung visits him in dreams and stuff like this, and the book is a kind of half-channel text sort of thing, uh, but also very well-researched. And he says the problem Jung had with Jungians is that they're always exploring his myths, they're not finding their own myths. So they're all mm. like going to alchemical texts and they're all reading alchemical texts through Jung. What if alchemy is not their myth? You know, what is their myth? What should they be reading alongside Jung that Jung himself didn't read or wasn't that interested in, but is unique to that thinker, to that one who is studying? I think that that's kind of for me where, you know, art and psychology and and uh poetry all kind of meet together in mystical practice yeah uh, I'll, I'll get off the soapbox now but yeah yeah but young was all about individuation <laughs> young is all about individuation and um and not being a youngian he didn't want to make other youngians he wanted people to individuate and i feel like the same thing has happened with lacan lacan's like tried to shake it up or maybe I don't know personally maybe being around him he was much more kind of authoritarian figure this kind of master figure but his mm. theory and the way he worked totally was about shaking things up and now there's like so many Lacanians that are just like parsing out what he meant here and what he meant there and like just trying to like be exactly like him or know exactly what he was talking about instead of just like thinking for themselves and it's fine if you want to research and study that way but I feel like in practice you shouldn't be worried mm. too much about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for the kind of hard study of the subject. I'm not like, kind of, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I think, you know, particularly with Jung, it's really important to actually, for me to really go into the details of his thinking, um, you, you, you know, but then once I, you know, I spent, I don't know, 10 years studying Jung's work. Now, I don't, actually read Jung very much at now. I, I mean, when did I last, the last thing I read was the Red Book, which was about three years ago now. Um, but the, 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 but where does that lead, where does that kind of deep thinking then lead me? You know, that, that, that then is the question. You know, how, how do, you know, Jung wasn't particularly interested in kind of body work but you know I'm very interested in theatre I'm very interested um, in the body and how you know in the Viking sense how memories and fantasies and dreams live in the body you know and I think for me Jung 
Jung didn't really go far enough into that field. So I had to look elsewhere. And I, I found that in kind of theater and live art practice. You know, uh, Jung's theory on gender are quite primitive nowadays, though for me, still very fascinating. Uh, although overtly heteronormative, which I find problematic with Jung. You know, so how then can I kind of distort and adapt and even mutate his thinking into a kind of myth that is more contemporary and current? You know, and I think I think that's you know that for me the Jungians who I really respect and admire are those who are kind of taking Jung into areas where Jung himself wouldn't have thought to have gone. You know, they obviously live in a different age with a whole different kind of context and culture. And a whole different kind of mannerism to the present one. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tom, what I liked what you said was uh, that, like, I relate to, I think a lot of writers relate to, is uh, you said something about, like, the child, uh, like, when their vulnerability is shut down. Uh, and to me, I mean, that almost sounds like the basis for art. <laughs> I mean, it's a way, it's like a fuck you. And I've actually, I've been thinking more about that lately of how, like within my own writing, I, I, I make it almost like obscenely intimate in a way. Mm. Um, and I, I've thought about why, like why, I mean, why? Um, and it's fun. I think, well, I think there is like a fuck you, like almost like vengeance element in it um, of like, oh, well, I couldn't say this. Well, I'm going to say it now. Um, so, yeah, no, I really like that. I think this should be a good time to bring up uh, to bring up Satan. <laughs> there is. Uh, there, there's a I, I kind of found this sort of thread of the wounded child individuation and the existential compulsion in this in the archetype say of of satan you know in this thing that you know this casted out um character who's sort of you know shunned and and is sort of craving that sort of vulnerability again uh and tying in you know the whole thing we were talking about chaos magic and discordianism you know it's like it, it sounds really cool but no one kind of likes you <laughs> you know when you have those like you know like all my left friends all my right friends and then they're bickering about whatever and then I just kind of come in the middle and I'm like I something with the sort of discordian chaos magic sort of vibe and yeah no one likes it you know but um <laughs> as far as I'm concerned it is the, it is the re you know it's the individual's voice you know at the end of the at the end of the day yeah, well, they mm -hmm. called it the third, the third way. You know, it's not oh. one or the other. It's a different path, or it could be the middle path and be super Buddhist about it. But I think, you know, I've had people ask like, "What is this thing with Satan, Vanessa?" And I think when you explain it that way, you know, with with the Bible, say, you know, the Bible was written by the perspective of like the white colonizer man, right? We can understand that the this guy. And now, you know, he's demonized Satan and Lilith, right? And they're like these bad girls. Mm -hmm. Lilith is this demonized lord everybody in. And Satan was bad and had to put him in the other place. He didn't want to do what I said. And so if you look at those characters that way, then like, of course, you can see most people, a lot of people would identify more with Lilith and the Satan characters that were like cast out and penalized and like put, it, put in their place, like put in another place than with this like god guy who's the total asshole <laughs> yeah right 
<laughs> yeah. Seems pretty simple and clear to me. <laughs> yeah. And my, you know, my, my little poetry book, it was um, um, a way, I call it like say, uh, satanic romanticism or something like that, you know, because Satan and those figures are, they're really romantic characters. They're truly romantic characters. And I wanted to kind of get, take a, get a different perspective of like the satanic sort of vibe because a, a lot of the, some of the people around me that kind of, a, their associations with Satanism is like this, I don't know, sort of edgy, tough guy kind of thing. And I don't know, that's not how it is. That's not how I look at it. Like it's very rich with, with vulnerability, say, and the wounded child and, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, there, there's always <laughs> these uh, pictures of Bethlehem on like, I, uh, on Instagram, and they always show him as this kind of warrior-esque masculine figure. And then you go back to Elephus Levi, and he's like this androgynous goat. And I mean, it's this beautiful androgynous goat. It's not some like masculine warrior, you know. It's got yeah. huge breasts, uh, you know, <laughs> and a, a Mercurius palace, you know. It's a very kind of poetic, feminine kind of sensual image you know and the goat the, the goat head doesn't look angry it looks really sweet actually you know looks like you have a nice conversation you know mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but I, I mean that's always the the, the you know I I, I I i i really love satanism um uh, but you you know all this uh hardcore masculinity satan Satan's a huge phallus erupting in everyone's faces. Like, give it a rest, mate. Just go to a gay orgy instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also think like thinking of like the devil in terms of a lover is interesting. Uh, and the book that I reference, uh, I Await the Devil's Coming. The main character, Mary McLean, who's like stuck in Montana. Uh, I mean on every page, he basically is saying, and I await the devil's coming. And to me, that was the devil. No, I don't think she meant it as like an, a, an actual, like physical being. I think the devil was her way out. Uh, I think the devil was sort of her escape um, because it wasn't going to happen on her own because uh, there was just, there was no one else there. Um, but to me, the devil really resembled a lover in that respect. It's like she wanted, well, she wanted someone to like love her and see her and take her out of her, her family, of her hometown. Um, so yeah, I like thinking of it that way too. Hmm. There's a, there, I think a part of us is, there's a part of us that's stuck in Montana, you know, <laughs> there's an art where we've just created a new archetype. And it's stuck in Montana, waiting for the <laughs> devil's coming. <laughs> but uh, Tom, yeah, I really like what you were saying about you know creating your own, exploring and creating your own uh, myths, your own or mythic sense of of living, and not living out another traditions or another culture's thing um, or gimmick, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, creating your own archetypes and things like that. I, yeah, I think that's really awesome. 
Yeah, that's very satanic as well. Creating your own environment mm-hmm. in your own way. And being punished for it too, right? Because I'm sure it gets you, you do it out of a kind of, I'm sure out of a kind of spiritual isolation or loneliness or something like that. Um, I imagine. But that's that, that's the relationship, I guess, right? You know, with uh, Tom, how you said magic uh, is dangerous, you know? And as we were talking earlier, technology is also has that kind of weird, that weird nature too, where it's kind of dangerous and very useful, but yes, also dangerous. It's got that sort of Promethean kind of vibe to it. And Prometheus is kind of like the Greek, the Greek Satan, I guess we can say, right? Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. I, th- I think like technology is rewiring our brains. I think like the brain is now sort of restructuring itself via the iPhone, the Android phone, whatever, the iPad, you know. I mean, I, mean, I sort of realized this when I did some LSD uh, not that long ago and I started seeing visions as if I was looking at an iPhone, I was like, fucking hell, I need to get off my fucking iPhone. <laughs> wow, that's depressing. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. I was saying that when, when I was a teenager, we would do pills and go to the fridge in Brixton. And I used to play a lot of video games. I, I haven't played a video game in ages, nothing against them, just not my thing. Uh, you know, I used to see visions of Mario Kart and stuff like that. So, you know, and I don't see them anymore. So hopefully it's not long lasting. Hmm. yeah my my uh appreciation for you know the meditations and and uh, visualizations that i learned with you know studying buddhism was that it allowed me thankfully to kind of have a general sense of the the internal circuit and wiring so that i might have some say in how it's being rewired with today's technology Yeah, yeah, I think there's there's interesting possibilities about how the two can connect in more conscious ways than rather than allowing it to happen it unconsciously. Um, have you you got more thoughts about that? I've been managing it by like I do my email and everything, anything related to the computer. Like while I'm working, you know, I see patients, and then while I'm like in that period. Um, that's when I deal with all of that, you know, I do it either in between or like a little bit before, a little bit after. And then when I'm done with like that period of my day, I just close my computer and I don't look at it anymore. Mm. And then nobody calls me. I mean, it's just like, nobody calls me like <laughs> for personal mm. reasons, So I don't need my phone or anything like for my daily life. So I just try to keep boundaries around it in that way. And that helps a lot because what was frustrating me, I noticed was like, I couldn't read anymore. It's like I had no reading attention span. And I used to be able to like read and read for hours and hours and hours, like all day if I had a day off and I just like couldn't focus on anything. And I realized, I think it's because of the computer. So I just had to put boundaries because I can't, yeah, I can't not read. It's like not acceptable. Yeah. (laughs) And I try to even like on the weekend, Like if I didn't have this today, I probably wouldn't be on the computer all day. Like I would just like not look at it and then like have a a total day off. And those days are like, they're hard in the beginning, but they're really precious when you get used to doing it. It's like, oh yeah, you get get a day screen free, you know? Yeah. And I think going forward where, you know, like when I was, 
when we were growing up in school, you had like a, a mandatory like health class, you know, where it's like, oh shit, looking at the data, we have an epidemic of say health, a health crisis. So it's like, okay, let's make it mandatory where we have a health class in school and kids have to take it. I think it, going forward, we're going to have to do like, yeah, like a tech health kind of class because the data is there that it's just like ruining it's ruining people, you know, uh, and, and I think there's going to be a class where, yeah, there's like, you know, if you spend too much time, this is what's going to happen, make some boundaries, et cetera. That's definitely what's going to have to happen with, with technology if we're to kind of go forward in any, with any hope of, uh, you know, our own individuation, I guess. Yeah. Not, get, not getting the cord yeah, right. in the back of the brain. Yeah. <laughs> It sucks too, because I mean, like my, with what I do, you know, I do a lot of entertainment and, you know, art, performance art and live stuff that I have to sort of promote and everything. So I'm, I feel glued to it sometimes, unfortunately, but, um, but yeah, I'm the same way. I, I have to sort of like, yeah, go into a body of woods or, you know, swim or something to break that, the, the, what I feel is starting to crystallize in my mind, you know, in my inner circuitry. So I'll have to do something to sort of uh, liquid, liquefy it or something. Yeah, because what depresses me a lot that I see happening is like uh, people are now like, like with the, with the, the log, the fire log or whatever on YouTube, uh -huh. and people like watch that instead of having a real fire and like so <laughs> many, so many animal pictures. And then like they have these amazing like videos of like the planet and all the whales and all this kind of stuff and you can just see people like we're destroying the earth and like destroying nature but also like capturing it like digitally like in this amazing technology where you can like see like the, the million eyes on the bug you know it's like so detailed and so people are just gonna be like watching that and be like wow look at the earth look at the earth it's so amazing <laughs> while like it becomes like a total wasteland it's so dystopian that is yeah. like yeah very huxleyan brave new world like dystopian thing you just painted out right there <laughs> And it, what's worse is that it's true. <laughs> it's happening, yeah. yeah. One, one, one of the things I hate at the moment in the arts, and this is just my little rant, is projection work. So, for example, um, there's like this glass box that goes into the sea, and then it appears on the inside. I'm not sure if the projection is from the inside or if they project it from the outside. Uh, is on fire. And I've only seen it in pictures. I've never seen it in real life. And the pictures look amazing. They look, they look, uh, oh my God, this is like ingenious. Until I realized it was just a projection. I mean, how much more amazing would it be if you created that effect in real life and had real flames? I mean, and it's very, very possible to do. You know, it's not, it's not, you know, it's just kind of basic kind of mechanics that any sort of, um, you know, theatre technician, you know, maybe trained in the kind of European school could kind of do quite easily. You know, why, why do we need these fake flames? You know, you know, it's not, it's kind of, and people go, well, isn't it like experience the ether? You, you know, Jung said, you know, the, the, the fire of mercury does not burn the hand. But, you know, they were often not alchemists who were talking about that. 
they weren't just <laughs> people sitting on the beach watching a light show on the water when they could actually be seeing real flames you know mm. and feeling the cold of the 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 sea and the heat of the fire now that is much more alchemical than just beaming a bit of light you know and i think i think you know for me you know we we have to return to reality you know one one of the very interesting things one of the things i i really liked in the clown school i went to uh which was um uh, a French clown school, but it wasn't either of the two famous ones. It was a very kind of different improvisational school. Uh, they'd always say, if you are presenting us with the imagination, reality has to come into it. Mm. Yeah, so if you like, you know, one of, uh, I actually wrote a poem about this, but the poem's kind of fictitious, uh, but the situation was real. That someone held a kind of they mimed a box, and Vivian the tutor said, "The box is not real," and the the uh, workshop participant kept on miming it, and he said, "We know you don't have a real box in your hand. That's the comedy. That's the the ingeniousness of it is to know that you don't have a real box in your hand, you know, and then reality can suddenly come back into that scene." You know, mm. and then suddenly you're you're you you get that that juxtaposition between reality and imagination, and you go back and forth between them. You know, and that that's kind of what's kind of interesting for me. You know, mm. it's almost like you were like you could you might as well could have been talking about like magic, you know, yeah. like practical like real practical magic. You know, where it, what really caught me was the you know the imagination and uh, you know syncing it with or uh extracting reality from like into it you know because you could just say oh yeah i want this and i want that but the magical process is that yes you try and make it to where reality can syncopate with it or something like that and i you know it's funny i think we all uh, uh me vanessa and jason all like our brows raised up when you brought up something uh, about clowns because you weren't here, uh, Tom, when we had a whole conversation about the clown as this sort of like, like uh, remnants of a, of a shamanic sort of uh, the, the archetype of the shaman, you know, the, the trick, the, the trickster sort of uh, kind of character. Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I got kicked out of the church. <laughs> Um, so I, I was, so I was sitting. I don't know, you know, people who watch this might not know. I was sitting in a, a kind of churchyard uh, because it was like the only quiet place. And then uh, we were talking about queerness and Satanism. I think the um, uh, what do you call it? The groundskeeper, whatever, kind of shooed me on. Uh, <laughs> so, so then I was trying to walk down the the road and not like have the cars sounding and then my phone just died and then you know I finally got back here anyway yeah um for, for me you know I, I perfectly concur with with that thinking for me you know um you know the the Arto always called himself the fool the fool um for me he's a very important figure and his idea of the body without organs what you know what, what does that actually mean what is actually left of a body without organs 
you know, and the most obvious, the most obvious kind of example of that is the skeleton, you know, the stripped bear, the skeleton stripped bear. And why, why is that important for magic? You know, Arto, Arto was obsessed with occultism. You know, he's obsessed with the idea of cursing and spells. You know, in the asylum, he cursed everyone who upset him, which was everyone most of the time. You know, but but why 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 is the skeleton so important? Because if the images are going to live, they need to go into the bone, into the most concrete part of the self. You know, because it mm. has to come into reality. You know, no point doing a magic spell if it doesn't come into reality in some way. Uh, you know, reading uh, Mircea Iliad's uh, work on on shamanism, apparently, I mean, the, you know, the bone was a super like emphasized thing for early shamanic uh, societies. And what, what what was it about the bone? Yeah, like the the bone was what it really it, it was. You know, like you can tell everything about a tree when you like look into it, you know, when you see the rings and so forth. It, it's like it, it, yeah, it like contains our soul, if you will. Like that's what they felt it did. Yeah, I think, I think, you know, Arto certainly, Arto had a strange relationship to death, but I think that's a kind of side note. Uh, you know, but there, there is something about, you know, the bone as, as the, the kind of concretization of, of the body of light. I think that was his kind of vision in some sense. You know, I, I think, you know, some Arto scholars may think I'm being a bit idiosyncratic in that interpretation and I would agree with them. But, you know, I think, I think that's one way to read it as well. Yeah, hey, also yeah. like a psychoanalyst I saw speak once said that um, when we laugh, we show our teeth and that's the only <laughs> bone that we see. And so it's like mm. showing people like our, our bones or even death, you know, like the, the core. Mm. Oh, I like that. You remember the psychoanalyst? I, I think it's good to smile in the face of death. I mean, you know, you're going to die if you meet death. Yeah. So you might as well smile. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, I think it's a Buddhist, uh, a, a Buddhist quote or something. I could be totally wrong, but I think it, I think I read it in the context of, of Buddhist literature where yes it was like you know they have like the tibetan laughing skulls you know the, yeah, yeah. it's Zizak sort of... moskovitz oh he wrote a great uh he wrote a great chapter in my book on psychoanalysis and violence and do, does lacan has anything to say about humor that's a good question i mean i'm sure he must have analyzed and written his own take on uh, freud's book um on jokes and their relation to the unconscious but i can't remember anything specifically lacanian about humor that's coming to mind right now either but i've also not been in that kind of mind frame lately so i i can't think of jung saying anything about humor either actually yeah, yeah that's true jung wasn't yeah. really funny and he also didn't write a lot about sex <laughs> he was very oh, much more myth mythology Oh my God, if you read his later letters, particularly to Barbara Hanna, 
Oh my god, they're so flirtatious, but they're so ridiculously flirtatious. Yeah, but supposedly he had sex with like a lot of his patients. So <laughs> he definitely was getting it on. He just <laughs> and there was even a point where he had like his wife and, and Tony like together, you know, yeah. they were all like kind of living together. So he wasn't uh prude, but he <laughs> didn't write about it much in theory. Yeah. Maybe that's why. Yeah. Maybe he was like yeah. keep that on the down low. the letters to barbara hannah he's always like i've had this vision of of aeon last night and i was like oh my god just get a room you two (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. young was quite the ladies man (laughs) (laughs) unlike freud i think yeah, Freud, Freud had very little sex other than his wife. Uh, yeah. Then, I mean, there's there's even a possibility she was his only lover. Uh, he was her only... No, yeah, she was his only lover, yeah. But I'm not sure that... I know his story, and so, yeah, I can't, I can't really... Yeah, I think he was very much wedded to her. Mm. But, um, Which is funny. Danny it's Nobis, like... I do have to tell you, though, Danny Nobis did tell me that, because he's writing a book on Lacan, and he got into some sort of archive. Oh, he used to be the chair of the Freud Museum in London. So he had access to archives that's not published yet. And so he had access to all of Marie Bonaparte's letters to and from Freud back and forth. And he said they were very, she was really trying. She was really trying. She was like throwing herself mm. in Freud. <laughs> so, but I don't think it went anywhere. I, 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 I got towed off at a psychoanalytic association for saying it's likely Freud was bisexual um, and I, I think that's probably true I mean uh, the three essays on the theory of sexuality uh, the first edition which is quite different from the post Oedipal um, kind of the one we're familiar with uh, oh who was it Verso uh, they, they uh, translated and published uh, the first edition and basically Freud says he, he keeps on going back and forth and changing his mind but the overriding kind of argument is that the child um, in terms of a kind of infant, infant sexuality is bisexual that they're equally drawn and attractive to, to both of the sexes and also they see themselves as androgynous. They don't have this kind of clear differentiation between the sexes. Hmm. And then Freud then kind of argues around 10, 11, going into puberty, those differentiations then start to crystallize. And um, in his mind, uh, he argues, obviously, that, uh, you know, he, he puts forward a kind of heterosexual uh, argument that the male then turns to the female and vice versa and you know and that crystallizes their sense of their own gender um but you know it's it's a very kind of interesting idea that the 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 distinctions aren't instilled in the mind that we have to somehow learn them you know um and 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 I think, I think once again, it comes back to this question of vulnerability and kind of finding, you know, um, 
the different kinds of genders that live inside of us. You know, mm-hmm. so when we dream, we can we can dream of the opposite gender as you know as being inside of us, as being a voice, and as being a kind of image and a body inside of us. You know, and I think I think that's really kind of interesting and something that I think. Uh, it's an idea that psychoanalysis are kind of overlooked, and it's kind of Freud's fault with the Oedipal complex. But I think Judith Butler's Gender Trouble uh, kind of brings that idea back into focus. And for me, I'm, I mean, it's an extraordinary theory, you know, and it's one that I stay actually pretty close to with Freud. But also, I don't think it should be a thing we just grow out of. I think that was kind of you know the idea that we should yeah. grow out of it is is to me ridiculous you know particularly as you know quote unquote an artist you know that's 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 where the good stuff is that's where the kind of the mixing of fantasies and ideas and images and memories exist you know in that kind of swirlpool of the of the id the seething cauldron of excitations as he called mm. Yeah, I was saying that, that there's see, there's a very primeval wildness to to that as well that I'm that I'm picking up on. Yeah, I'm I'm absolutely for that. You know. Yeah. The the yeah the kind of archaic revival that that I've uh, I really like that that uh, term. Yeah, this this return to the pre-edible wildness of 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 the self. You know, and obviously, you know, you, you go through, you know, uh, you go through art school or whatever, you know, and you do these practices that take you back into that place, you know, and then there's a chance. And I think, I think that's, that's what's interesting. And it's interesting in terms of therapy um, uh, that when a person goes into that place, then they can start making choices that then they could start to have choices about their sense of self and how that sense of self grows again. You know, like the phoenix renewing itself. Mm, the, the alchemical process starts to yeah. make sense to your re- real sense anyway. And there's, but the difference between, you know, that happening in childhood and then that happening again is adulthood is you've got that conscious voice, which is able to somehow direct elements of it. You know, and I think that's kind of fascinating. You know, you know, you, you get, you don't get a complete say in it, but you get a little bit of a say about how you want your personality or how a person's personality wants to rise again, how it is to be shaped and reconfigured. You know, and I think, um, uh, my, my old boss, Petrutska Clarkson, her paper on metanoia, metanoia means a kind of turnaround. Um, it's an uh, idea that comes very much from Gestalt, but it's also in Jung, um, that, you know, this kind of revisioning and returning of the personality into something other than what, what it is. You know, and that that, and she outlined a kind of seven. I think it's seven level model. Uh, I I'm not going to be able to recite all those stages, but the idea is that 
through intensifying the self and all the voices and images of the self that they can then kind of be turned around. So in a practical example, um, you know, uh, you know, if someone's internal relations have this kind of deep negativity to them, if someone has never been told that they've been, been loved, they would never really hug, they were never really nurtured uh, through a kind of tendency of care and, and love, you know, those voices are going to be quite, uh, you know, in Freud's sense, they're going to be very kind of repressive, they're going to be of the superego, they're going to push a person down, you know, and they're not, their self is going to be incomplete, but there's nothing to tell them that they're, 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 they're worthwhile, there's nothing to tell them that they have a purpose, there's nothing to tell them that they, they are loved and are able to love another person, you know, so the idea then of therapy in the uh, in Petruska's sense is to change those voices, to redirect, to turn them around into a loving presence for that individual, which then reshapes them. I hope that makes sense. That might have just be mm. well. No, I, I would. Sorry, go ahead, Jason. No, I think it makes like total sense. I, I've always thought of it in a way of like it's sort of like in a way, ripping up everyone else's narrative um, and then sort of maybe finding your own or like including kind of ripping up those narratives and rearranging it. Um, because it, sometimes it's like, especially, I mean, if everything like starts with the family, <laughs> um, it's like, it's everyone else's narrative. It's your parents' narrative. It's your sister's narrative. And, um, sometimes the individual is like a sponge and so yeah it could take some ripping up or like some sort of uh some sort of change to then find your own narrative um and then actually thinking of things in terms of that and how how does that rearrange things how does that change um not only how you see yourself but like maybe even a larger narrative than that. Like what's, what's the story, <laughs> I guess. And I mm. think therapy kind of offers um, a doorway to figure out what the stories are instead of this one like continuous thing, um, mm. which oftentimes is boring. <laughs> yeah. So my, uh, my first I guess the the tradition, the spiritual tradition that I first found a kind of refuge in, you know, in my in my teens, in my troubled teen years or whatever, um, was a uh, Tibetan tantra, and essentially the 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 whole, uh, I guess, gist of it was to take this dark, say, matter karmic infestations and transmute them. This is a constant talk about transmutation in the Tibetan tantric uh, uh, sort of jargon. You know, this taking of this uh, primeval um, energy and channeling it and say, you know, making it into say light or loving kindness or compassionate energy, as you were saying, Tom, like changing the voices, you know, changing the, 
change, uh, creating a new manifestation of a of a substance. And yeah, it kind of ties in a very alchemical sort of uh, language too. So I think, yeah, I think that all throughout, there's this kind of thing that this alchemical vein, right? Of, of, of what we're talking about. And it it's been running through art and it's been running through therapy and it's been running through all, yeah, I think a lot of what, what we've touched base on. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion between Tom Bland, Jason Hoff, and Zai Valdez. Follow them on social media and check out their books. Tom Bland is Physis93 at Twitter, and his new book is Camp Fear from Bad Bready Press. Jason Hoff is Hoffwit at Instagram, and his book coming out is Harsh Cravings. And Zai Valdez is Ronin versus Strawberry Ice Cream and at Violet Silhouette Official at Instagram. If you're in South Florida, be sure to check out Violet Silhouette at La Rosas in Miami. This weekend, Saturday, February 26th. And if you're in London, be sure to check out Tom Bland's poetry at Queer Erotica at The Glory. And now we're going to have a listen to Violet Silhouette's song, a cover of Godstar by Psychic TV. You can find more at violetsilhouette.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. Stars, 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 oh.
your star.